Islamic Republic. The first time we went, we smuggled Bibles. When I say that, I'm not saying that to be dramatic. It, that's literally what happened. It was It's illegal for them to come in there. And so, as we get into this today, i got a question I want you to think about. Is it okay? Is it okay to break the law if you disagree with the people who are enforcing them? And, and before you answer that, if that's the case in another country, is that the case in our own country? Can you break the law if you disagree with the person who is enforcing them, even if it's on moral grounds? Nobody want to answer that one? Okay, good. Uh, okay, let's go to First Peter. And remember, remember, as we start going through this, remember these are, again, Jewish people who are exiled out of their own land, Jewish believers, this is a church, so this is the church, but he's specifically addressing them as Jewish believers because they've been exiled out of their home. Who exiled them? Who kicked them out? Who's run them out? Well, Jews is part of it, but the Romans ultimately, yeah, the Romans have. That's important because watch what happens here in verse 13 where we're going to pick up. Be subject. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be subject is a military term. It means like to get in line behind. So it's it's military. Get in line. Form a line behind every human institution. Every human institution. Which one does that leave out? Unfortunately, none of them (laughs) is that only American institutions. Every institution, you say, well, what if they're not a godly institution? Every human institution. So he's pretty much robbing you of even being able to say, well, if they're not godly, I'm not, you know, whatever. It's every human institution. You're supposed to get in line behind them. And even the emperor which is a big statement. We'll come to that in a minute. But verse 14 says, from the top all the way down, or even to governors, which has been tough for Molly and I this week because the mayor and county commissioner in Catoosa are tearing up our front yard to put a sewer in we didn't ask for. But I'm supposed to get in line behind that. I'm having a hard time with that. Um, Anyway, but they're sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's the purpose that they're there for. That doesn't mean they're doing it. Uh, there are crooked, crooked systems, of course. But they're instituted by God for that purpose when they do it well. But why is he telling you to be subject to them in this sentence? What, what does he say? Well, we should. We should do good regardless. Why? What does he say? What's the words in the sentence here? What does he say? It's it's his will. In verse 15. Verse 13, he gives the command, but he tells you why. Why? For the Lord's sake. Be subject 
to these things for the Lord's sake. Now, what does that mean? That's not like, for God's sake, please. That's not what that means, okay? That's not like that. You're going to make him look bad. Now, that's a funny thing. I asked that last night. Can God's reputation be tarnished? And it was like this confused look for a minute. Like, no, you can't mess with God's reputation. God is God. That's true. But that's not what we're getting at here. How, how can you mess up God's reputation? Listen, you guys know, and I mean this with all due respect, you guys know bad Christians. There's a guy, I won't say his name, Molly and I have known for many years, I've known for a very long time, that when I came out of the world about 15 years ago, he was at another church that we were at, and he was the evangelist machine. Like, he was always out doing evangelism. He was out sharing the gospel left and right. He'd come back and talk about when people would commit to Christ. He was probably one of the most on-fire people I've known, and because of the past that both of us had come from, I couldn't believe it, you know, that this guy was where he was. And that was the case for many years. Well, in the recent past, his life has changed. This past week, I always get the Just Busted magazines with the criminals in it because we do prison ministry. Well, we do prison ministry, so sometimes, I don't know why, but sometimes I'll end up seeing people in there and anticipating who might show up or whatever. So, in any event, uh, this dude is in there three on three different pages. Three different pages. Three different mugshots. So... What if he gets in prison and he says, yeah, man, I'm a Christian, man. I love Jesus. You know, well, that's not a pretty picture of who Jesus is, whether it's true or not. Yes, you can mess them up. So for the Lord's sake, get in line behind these institutions. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. Okay, can't get much more blunt than that. This is the will of God. What he's about to say is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does ignorance mean? Not knowing. Yeah, not knowing. Kind of we interchange innocence here with ignorance. Innocence is not the same, but that's the idea is that they just don't know. It doesn't mean they're dumb. It just means they don't know. They're ignorant of him. And because of that, they're foolish they're behaving foolishly because they're ignorant of him. And he says that you can silence that by doing good. Verse 16, live as people who are free. So live as people who are free. You are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Anybody got a different word besides servants? Bond, bond slaves, that's the idea. Literally, it's slaves. That's the language. So he's saying that you live as people who are free, but living as slaves of God. That almost sounds contradictory, doesn't it? You live as free, but you live, you're living as slaves of God. Paul and Peter, man, I know they were together. I know they were discipled by the same guy. <laughs> but, uh, but they have a lot of similar talk. Paul really got this, I think. You've heard the phrase, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Uh, that, you don't have to turn to this. That comes from 1 Corinthians 6.12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Lawful means, according to Jewish laws, what he means here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's free. Living is free. But verse 19 says, you're not your own, for you are what? Bought with a price, which means you belong to him. 
you are a slave. So he's on the one hand, he's free. On the other hand, he's a slave to Christ. Uh, in Romans chapter 14, you, you flip over there. Let's go to that one real quick. Hold Peter. You come right back to it. Go to Romans back a few pages to chapter 14. In chapter 13, he talks about the very same thing, being submissive to authorities. And then in chapter 14, he talks about as brothers and sisters, so as family. Verse 6, he says, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor to the Lord. Basically saying if, if, if you think Saturday's the better day or Sunday's the better day or Monday's the better day or Wednesday's the better day to worship on. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains his stains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, if they don't want to eat meat, if they do eat meat, if they, you know, whatever it may be. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself. So, first of all, they're free. You're free to worship on whatever day you want to worship on. You're free to eat whatever you want to eat. Whether it be Sabbath or food laws, that's what he's talking about here. You're free of those things. However, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we what? Are the Lord's, which makes you a slave to him. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to put not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So even though you're free to do all those things, you're a slave to Christ, which means you would never use that freedom in order to hurt somebody else or to even to cause somebody else to get hurt. Okay, anyway, let's move on. Look at chapter 15. Scroll on down. He talks about neighbors here. In verse 1 of chapter 15, we who are strong, which means you're free, you're strong in what you believe, you understand it, you've got, you've got the fact that you live as free of the law. You have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So not everybody has the faith you've got. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now notice he didn't say brother or sister here, he said neighbor. Who's the neighbor? Pretty much everybody. If you want to be completely specific about it, it means someone in proximity to you. But what qualifies a person as a neighbor beyond that? Nothing. I mean, that doesn't say anything about believers, unbelievers, good people, bad people. doesn't make any difference. Go back to First Peter and you'll see Peter picks right up on that thought in chapter 2. In verse 17, what's the first two words? Honor everyone or all. Honor everybody. You think, well, he's just talking about the church. No, because the next sentence says, love the brotherhood. That would be the church. Brotherhood. But honor everybody. No about y'all, but that's a hard one. That's a tough one. He didn't say like everybody. (laughs) He said honor everybody. Fear God, that's key. If you fear God, the rest will tend to work itself out. And then honor the emperor. Honor everybody. But why do you think the emperor is part of everybody? So why specifically put in there, though, honor the emperor? Like he got a special place on the list here. Everyone, brotherhood or church, God and the emperor. Yeah, who's the emperor right now in their time? Nero. What's Nero famous for doing? 
burning Christians at the stake to light the streets. This Colosseum in the picture back here, I mean, that, that all came out of his doing. He's the one that began to feed them to lions and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure he wasn't the first, but he's the one that became a legend for it. He's the one that started this great persecution of Rome. So that's who they're hearing. Honor the one who is sending people to the lions, your people. Honor the one who's lighting the streets with your brothers and sisters and children. Honor the one who is uh, building a coliseum and burning Jerusalem at the same time. How in the world do you do that? Let's go on. Verse 18 says, same words, servants be subject or get in line to your masters. Now, that's that same word, servants. So what does it really mean? Slaves, get in line behind your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So before we figure out why he would say, Get, be subject to or get in line behind an unjust master. Let's look at the fact that he says the good and gentle ones. So does that mean that the Bible endorses slavery? Are we saying there are good slave masters? This is a very controversial topic, especially with really even the church, because I don't think the church terribly understands this. But besides that, especially from the atheist world, this is one of the biggest arguments that... They love to go to that the, the Bible condones slavery. The fact of the matter is that is absolutely 100% true. Absolutely 100% true. The problem is you don't understand what slavery means in the Bible. That's the problem. So let me show you where it comes from. Go to Exodus. Hold your hand. We'll come back. Go to Exodus chapter and, and the reason this is important is because the Bible called you a slave to Christ. Called you a slave. And it's so funny that we've turned it into a servant because we are not comfortable with the word slave. But it's not. It means a slave. The problem is that we disassociate the slavery word from what its biblical meaning is. So we are slaves to Christ. It's important that you understand what the Bible says about slaves. So... In Exodus, I'm sorry, chapter 20, what's the theme of chapter 20? Ten Commandments, exactly right. So here's the moment on Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments come down and God gives Moses the law, chapter 21. The very first topic of discussion is about slaves. Watch this, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before your people. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh year shall go out free. So number one, you've got to pay for the person. Number two, that no matter what, after six years, in the seventh year, what happens to them? Free. They're freed. I don't care how you feel about it. They go free. Not only that, for how much money? Nothing. I don't care what you paid for them. I don't care what you think they're worth. They go free for nothing. Okay? Now watch this. If he comes in single, he goes out single. If he comes in married... Then his wife shall go out with him. If he has children, the children go with him. What he's saying is this. You don't get to keep him like uh, he's made more kids for me to serve. That's not what happens. If he gets married while he's with you, he gets everything he has goes with him when he leaves. This Exodus 21. He, he's free to go with him. Now watch this. Verse 5. If the slave plainly says... I love my master, my wife, and my children. I'll not go out free. 
Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the doorpost, the door of the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and shall be his slave forever. That's not as gruesome as it sounds. All that means is pierce his ear. That's all it means. Pierce his ear and give him an earring. What you're saying by that is the person is now part of your family. Why in the world would a person not want to go free? Let's say, for instance, that you and your wife or your husband and your kids live in a 3,000 square foot house on the lake on 25,000 acres of property that, that your master owns. He loves you and provides food for you, brings you to the table, hangs out with you. You love his kids. You love his wife. You only see him when you feel like seeing him. What in the world would you toss all that outside for and go out on your own? I mean, you could, but maybe you don't want to. Maybe you love that. Maybe you feel like you're part of the family. Maybe he's treated you like part of the family. You feel like part of the family. So you say, no, you know what? We want to stay. We want to be part of this family. We want to stay and do that. Then you can, which meant the master was really good to you. And the earring is like this ring on my finger. This doesn't, all this does is symbolizes that Molly and I are family. We're married together. We're family. That's what it symbolizes. The earring was the same thing. It's just symbolizing that you have decided to become family with this person, which was really awesome because it showed everybody that this guy was really good to you and his family was really good to you and he loved you. And you guys said, you know what? We're going to stay close. We're going to stay family. Now, look in verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be what? Put to death. That's the one you're familiar with. That's not called slavery. That's called stealing. When you go to another country, be it Africa or wherever, and you kidnap people, you steal people, and you enslave them, if you do that, or if you're caught in possession of somebody doing that, that that has been through that, the Bible says you should be put to death. So, no, it does not condone slavery in that sense. Absolutely not. It does condone slavery in the sense of what we might see, honestly, as welfare. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. But either way, they were treated with great love, great care. And no matter what, after six years, they're free to go, no matter what. So, there's the picture. Go back to First Peter chapter 2 because here's the deal with first peter in first peter many of these guys are slaves because they've been taken captive they're in exile well they're not been taken captive but they're in exile so many of these are probably slaves and some of them might even be facing this arena right here some of them might even have been captive and and be facing the day when they're going to be walking up in there as slaves certainly that would be an unjust situation so he tells them get in line too how could you tell somebody getting lying behind that? I saw this uh, online, and I didn't do a lot of research in it, so I, I didn't verify it. I don't, I don't often read articles that are just thrown up there because most of them are not trustworthy in my opinion. But this one, the reference was a fairly trustworthy reference, so I, I looked over it, and there's no reason to believe it's not true, but it was talking about ISIS. Some of you may have seen it. And uh, this group of believers that they kidnapped from Syria and uh, a portion, they, the, the group was divided. One was a church planner, a pastor guy, and, and I didn't get clarity on whether, I think they were Syrian 
people. I don't think they were foreigners. Uh, but anyway, part of the group was divided into one section, another part, and another section. So the one section that was divided off first were all beheaded. The other section, uh, these are Muslims that had converted. The other section where this pastor was with them, it said that he has a 10-year-old boy and that they began to cut off the fingertips of this 10-year-old boy to try to force him to reconvert back to being a Muslim, which he would not do, and ultimately had him, the boy, and the other few that were with him crucified publicly. Now, I got a daughter. I can tell you right now for a fact I couldn't do that. I would cave. Now, I have to believe if I put in that situation, maybe the Holy Spirit give me what I need. I don't know. But standing here in front of you today, I couldn't do that. But that's what he's saying is get in line, get in line behind that. Revelation 6.11 talks about martyrs, and it, it, God tells them to wait for the complete number to be killed as they've been killed. Uh, Revelation 13.10, talking about the saints, and it says, if, if one is to die by the sword, to the sword he must go. That's some tough stuff. You know, y'all often hear me beat up the prosperity gospel. It drives me up the wall. It is a lie. It's an absolute lie. So much of Scripture is in the face of it. It's not funny. But there's another common phrase that comes out in that talk. And it, it's got some merit, but it's misunderstood as well. And that's the whole idea of favor. You hear all these conversations. Oh, man, you got favor of God's on you. And you got great favor. And you're a favored. And, uh, you know, don't mess with me because I got the favor of God. I got that favor on me, blah, blah, blah. What is favor? Peter defines it. Look at verse 19. He flat defines it. Mine says, for this is a gracious thing. The word a gracious thing is one Greek word. One Greek word. And it's translated as grace or favor, depending on the context. So, in this context, is clearly favor because it means it's the, the sense of the word is something that adds to your reputation or your esteem. So you want to know what favor is? Here it is. This is favor. When, mindful or conscious of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's, that's favor. It says favor in your translation? It brings favor if. Yeah, you endure suffering. Why does suffering have to be there? Why, why does it take suffering to be called favor? Because Jesus suffered. Look, he answers the question. Verse 20. It's almost like he knew you were going to ask that. Verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure... This is favor in the sight of God. That's, that's what it means to be favored. It, most people that say that say that, hey, I don't have any worries in the world. I'm favored. I got my car paid for. I'm favored. I got everything worked out. I'm favored by God. You might, you know, that might be a blessing. You got zero to do with favor. Favor is the exact opposite. Favor somehow means that you have been through some suffering and unjustly and you have endured it well. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Think about that a minute. 
We always jump to turn the other cheek. That's not, he didn't just say turn the other cheek. He said, don't resist the one who is evil. Evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Now, again, we jump to that. If somebody steals your coat, give them your cloak. It didn't say steal. If somebody sues you, it's a process of taking what belongs to you. Like my frontage space on my ro- on my house. No, if somebody's in the process of taking what belongs to you, if they sue you for your tunic, give them your cloak too. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Talking about if a soldier forced you to carry his bag. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is suffering unjustly. And he calls that favored. Paul don't have to turn to this either. First Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a de- defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's a tough, that's a tough one. Why not? Why not just be defrauded? Why not suffer unjustly? That's what he's saying. Because you're favored. When you do verse first uh, Corinthians seven, next chapter in verse 13, he says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For verse 16 says, for how do you know, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Same thing. You might be suffering some seriously unjust situation here, but there's favor when that comes along. God's doing something. Jesus puts all of it to rest in Luke 6. You don't have to turn to this. You know it too. Verse 6, chapter uh, 6 of Luke, verse 32. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Get, get what he says. What benefit? means you should be getting some benefit. You should be getting something, but you get none if you love those who love you. For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? What do you get for it? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit, same thing, is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, much less interest. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Notice he doesn't define what that is. And then he says, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. One more thing there in verse 19, Peter says back up there when he's talking about favor coming and suffering. He says, when we're conscious or aware or mindful of God. Why do you think he says that? That's a good way to look at it. It's hard for us to see. Well, you know, we, we might be able to judge the good and the bad, but it's hard for us to see that in a way that he does. So you've got to have your mind on him. And he says this. Look at verse 21. When suffering for good happens, remember this. For to this you have been called. I've about come to the conclusion that that is one of the most frightening sentences in the whole Bible. Probably right up there with have you considered my servant Job. You know? For to this you have been called. People say, hey, man, do you know what your calling is? Suffering? Suffering? Yes. 
Yes, that's it. I know, I know. That's it. That's what it says. Why? Why would he possibly call you to suffer? He tells you. Because why? Because he did. For who? You. For you. Yeah. For me. You know, when I was talking uh, this week in the Hamilton County Jail, I was talking about them praying for my wife and I as we prepare to go to Africa again. And guys who's there, who's also African-American dude and a believer, but he was like, I don't know how you do it, man. I couldn't do it. And for the record, there is nothing special about me. There are people even in this room who have been in much worse places than than I have. So I, this is not about me bragging. That's not the case. Uh, but just for the context of what I'm saying here, the guy said that I could never go. You know, I, I could never do that. I don't know how you do that. And so I asked him, I said, why do you think I do it? Why do you think I or anybody, same question, would do that? And the Great Commission came up. Somebody said, Jesus said, go, which is true, yes. And some say, you know, you love Jesus. And yes, these things are true. Uh, but then I asked him, I said, tell me something. Tell me what you think of heaven. Like, describe to me what you picture when somebody says heaven. And they had all kinds of awesome words. They were like, you know, bright light. They were like... um Perfect love, like no, you know, no anger or hatred, nothing bad or evil. Or somebody said clean. I like that word, completely clean. And um, I was like, awesome. And they talked about that. I mean, I said, okay, now describe this place. And we're sitting in a prison in jail. So now describe this place. And somebody was like, well, pretty much the exact opposite. I said, okay, well, describe it. Tell me about it. How about the food? What do you think? And they were like, oh, you know, it's awful. It's ab- complete absence of love. In fact, to talk about love makes you weak and puts you in danger. Disgusting, dirty, filthy, diseased. I mean, just went through all this long list. I said, okay, so Jesus left the first place you described to come to the second place you described. In order to get me. And if he would do that. For me. And then he asked me to go to a place. That I may be uncomfortable with. I, how in the world am I going to say no? You know how, how could I possibly say, say no to that? He goes on here. He says. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you as an example. What did he say? You cannot be my disciple unless you do what? Take up your cross and follow me. Y'all probably heard me talk about that before. Modern day language. Climb in your electric chair and follow me. That's what it means. It doesn't mean take on your hard job. A cross was an instrument of torture and death. So what he's saying is you must die. And so he left you that example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And no reason for this to have happened to him. It did anyway. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him, to God the Father. I know he's God too, which is crazy. But entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Notice it doesn't say the cross. There's a reason. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I read all of that because there's so much scripture in that, it's insane. Peter is just spitting out Old Testament scripture left and right. I give you just some of them. 
when he said, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's almost pulled straight from Genesis 18:25, when Abraham is approached by God on his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, shall not the God of all the earth do what is just? Is he really going to sweep away with the righteous, with the wicked? He's saying he's going to do what's just. And what Abraham is doing there is, I trust you that you will do the just thing. Same thing here. Isaiah 53 is all over this. No deceit was found in his mouth. That's a direct quote out of Isaiah 53. He was reviled. He suffered directly out of Isaiah 53 by his wounds. We're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of these things are pulled straight out of there. He talks about him as the shepherd. Psalm 23. Uh, Isaiah 40. He's referred to as the good shepherd. Ezekiel 34. He's referred to as a good shepherd. John chapter 10, obviously, is the good shepherd, but... Peter wouldn't have had the book of John like we do. So that's New Testament, not necessarily applicable in that sense. When he says he bore our sins on the tree, why did he say on the tree and not on the cross? Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And in fact, the New Testament, Paul talks quite a bit about how that pointed to Christ. He became a curse for us. Romans 6 goes into a lot of detail about the fact that because of that, we die to sin and we live to righteousness. So Peter is just spitting all this scripture out to support what he's, what he's been teaching here. And he's telling them to remember that Jesus is the ultimate emperor here. I love that last one, overseer of your souls. What that means is, I don't care who the emperor is, he has no access to you except through Christ. No access to you except through Christ. Nobody else does either. No demons, no angels, not even Satan, much less a mere human leader. How do we know that? How do we know not even Satan has access to you unless God says so? Give me an example. Job. Yeah. He had to go ask permission. Well, and God even called him to ask. Yeah. Yeah. What? He asked permission to go to Peter. It says he demanded to sift Peter like wheat. Well, if he could have done that why didn't he just do it why did he go demand to do it and for the record jesus didn't stop him in fact jesus said those scary words but i prayed for you that when you come through it which means he was going to give it to him demons serve him in the old testament you don't see angels and demons you only see angels you don't even really see fallen angels you just see angels you have to sort out whether or not that spirit is wicked or not by the context one example in first kings twenty two twenty one, god says Speaking to these angels around him, he says, who will go entice Ahab to go to war that he may die? And a spirit comes forward and says, I'll do it. And he says, how? And he says, I'll go be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets and they'll lie to him and he'll go to uh, war. Obviously, that's not an angel in the sense that we think of an angel. That would be what we would refer to as a demon. But God permitted him to do that. That actually happens a lot. So don't think that's an isolated incident. There's several places I don't have time. But the demons are subject to him, and certainly the rulers and mankind is. Do you know in the Old Testament, the Nero of the Old Testament was Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely annihilated Israel, Jerusalem. Starved them to the point that they were eating. Their Women were eating their own children. That's in the Bible. You can go back and read it. Uh, Jeremiah, who lived through that time, refers to Nebuchadnezzar five, six times as my servant, God speaking, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. 
God is in control no matter what. Romans 8, nothing in all creation can separate us from him. You know why? Because he's over all creation. He's in charge of everything. So before we close out here, what about the Bible smuggling thing and the proselytizing? I brought that up to begin with. You're supposed to be subject to getting in line behind all these authorities. What about, you know, preaching the gospel when it's illegal? What? You're the man. Acts 4, let me read it. Verse 18, you're dead on. You don't have to turn to it. Acts 4, 18 through 20. So Peter and John have been just attacked by the Sanhedrin because they are breaking the Jewish law. They are, in a sense. They're out doing something that the Jewish authorities have told them not to do. And it says they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, and this is so smart and crafty. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's awesome. Whether it's right or wrong to obey God rather than you, you be the judge. But we got to obey God. Now, here's the kicker. Obey God above all, but accept the laws of the land as a consequence. That's the deal. That's what Christ did. That's what all the apostles did. He never saw them fight the governors. In fact, Jesus said, because of your stand for me, you'll be brought before governors and kings to testify to them. Jesus stood before Pilate and Herod. And when he did say a word, he, even if he asserted the truth, he was respectful with it. And it still got him killed. It still got him killed. All the apostles are the same way. Peter and Paul never fought going to prison. They went. What did Peter do when he was in prison? One of the more famous stories. They started singing. Yeah, and ultimately saves a jailer because the door opens. He don't leave because he don't want to get the jailer in trouble. You can go read it in your own time. That's what he's talking about. You're subject to them, and you accept, though, that that may mean you go to prison. That may mean you get tortured, but God is the highest authority, so you go to him first. So real quick, the last three things. How do you see God in this? What is the gospel, and what do we do with it? How do you see God in it? It's pretty easy. You look at Jesus' example here. Jesus kept all of the law, all of the Jewish law. He kept it to a T, but he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? He also said, remember that carry the pack? Let me put that into perspective. This is one of the most powerful pictures I've ever seen in my life. That's the idea. Jesus carrying a Nazi's backpack. Jesus as a Jew carrying a Nazi's backpack and rifle for a couple of miles. Imagine what that conversation would be like. You realize you have the privilege of having a conversation with them while you're carrying their stuff? they get annoyed by it they'll take their stuff and tell you to go on <laughs> you know it's such a win-win that's the picture though i mean he's like i said he stood in front of these rulers he said nothing he was in humility and he still got killed but he knew something he knew something the whole way that number one angels were at his disposal and two he told Pilate, you only have authority over me because god gave it to you and i submit to him he entrusted himself to god which is the idea same thing that we should do. The gospel's pretty clear. Christ humbled himself. He was obedient to his heavenly father and also the law of the land, which called for his execution. And he didn't attack or insult even those who were wrong. And what was the result of that? 
He was crucified, rose from the dead, and brought redemption to the very people who killed him in some cases. It might just be that God knows what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? It might just be. So what do we do with this? Last thing, real quick. I got a few things, and they're not pleasant, but they're just the truth. Number one, stop flipping out about who the president is or who the next president's going to be. It's okay to talk about it, but don't flip out about it. You, why? Why are you supposed to be subject for him? For whose sake? For the Lord's sake. Yes, God's putting him in power, but don't get caught up in all that. You're supposed to do it for the Lord's sake. Now, you can't, here's my point. You can't turn around and be totally freaked out about it, freaked out about it, freaked out about it, and then turn around and say something like, but God's in control. You don't believe that. You do not believe that. Just don't say it because when you do say it, then everybody who hears you knows you don't believe it. And you're painting a picture of God that's not fair. You want to paint a picture of God that's just be subject to whoever's there now and whoever's going to be there. And, and somehow, I know, but somehow honor them. Somehow you've got to honor them. Don't disrespect them. That's number two. Don't disrespect any leaders, any of them. I don't care if they're your governor all the way up to who the president is now or who he's going to be or who it's going to be male or female i don't care you got to find a way to show them honor without abandoning scripture or devaluing your principles but still showing them honor sometimes that might mean you just be quiet four don't be afraid to endure unjust treatment don't feel like you've got to be on the right side. Don't feel like you've got to argue your point. Sometimes people may have a point they made against you and it isn't right. And so what? Just say, okay. And just eat it. The last thing is the most important thing is keep the order in place. Jesus is king. Period. If you know Jesus is king, then every other authority is beneath him and that's okay. Whoever it is. Whenever they show up. Let me read this to you as a little closing thing to think about. Back when the Ferguson, Missouri riots came out, I got pretty attacked online because I went online and made some comments that were pretty calm and clean. And they were just like, you know, because I, I couldn't understand how in the world as a racial protest or as protest of injustice, a community is burning their own community. I'm like, why would you burn your own neighborhood? These are people that are trying to make a living in your neighborhood. I'll never forget seeing the images of uh, liquor store burning. You know, I'm like, that's somebody's business who lives there. I don't care what you think about liquor. That's beside the point. It's somebody's business who lives there and you're burning that in a sign of whatever. And I couldn't understand that. I was like, why would you do that? Well, I got ripped apart by Christians, quote unquote, people who are supposed to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor are tearing me up. They should be doing something. I agree, but it should be peaceful, I think. Even if it's unfair the way that things are being treated, and even if it's unpopular to do that way. Today, there has never been a worse time to be in be a police officer that I know of. Never been a worse time to be a government person that I know of. They're pretty much hated from police officers to the president, and there's causes all over the place on all sides. Y'all know who they are. I'm not going to say them all. But I often think, and I keep reminding myself about a man who absolutely changed history, 100% altered it as a believer and did it the right way and he was killed for it, murdered for it. In fact, 
despite the fact that he didn't like the government situation and he was angry with the situation, he was unwilling to disrespect the government. And as a result, many people got frustrated with him, even his own people, and tried to take things into their own hands and, and do things violently. And this is uh, in 1963 on the steps of the Capitol building in D.C., Martin Luther King, Reverend Martin Luther King said, In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's obvious today that America has defrauded on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. But, listen, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. Listen to how the high view he has of the nation that he's also frustrated with. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. But there's something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. And this last paragraph is awesome. I'm not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. It's like it came out of Peter's mouth. Some of you have been veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. And then he says, I have a dream and begins to talk about the part that's so familiar. January 2009, Barack Obama, I don't care what you think about him. I don't care what you think about his politics, became the first African-American president, 44th president of the United States. In July of that same year, Brad Paisley, country singer, sang a song to him or for him at the White House, and it goes like this. When I was 10 years old, I remember thinking how cool it would be when we were going on an eight-hour drive if I could just watch TV. And I've given anything to have my own Pac-Man game at home. I used to have to get a ride to the arcade. Now I've got it on my phone. Glory, glory, hallelujah, welcome to the future. My grandpa was in World War II. He fought against the Japanese. He wrote a 100 letters to my grandma, mailed them from his base in the Philippines. I wish they could see this now where they say this change can go because I was on a video chat this morning with a company in Tokyo. Every day is a revolution. Welcome to the future. Look around. It's all so clear. So many things I never thought I'd see happening right in front of me. Listen to this. I had a friend in school running back on a football team. They burned a cross in his front yard for asking out the homecoming queen. I thought about him today 
Everybody who's seen what he's seen from a woman on a bus to a man with a dream. Wake up, Martin Luther. Welcome to the future. You never know what God may be doing. You never know what God may be doing, so you've got to honor those people no matter how you feel about it. I want to say, I'm not time to break.